of, well, actually, we're in the middle of a long study of the book of Romans. It's taken about three years, two and a half, to get to this point. We're in chapter four, but even having come to chapter four, we've taken a uh, side road, and the side road has to do with um, trying to figure out how best to live out a life of grace. One of the things that I hope we get a reputation for here at Gracie Van is that this is a place that emphasizes grace. Um, and I, I hope that reputation is ours. I'm not sure it is, but uh, let's, we can hope. But uh, not only are we as uh, uh, saved men and women saved by grace, we are also, we live by the same stuff. We're supposed to be fleshing out a life of grace in, 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 in the walk we have with Jesus Christ. And, and very honestly, there's, there's some real trickiness in, in that. In fact, so tricky that um, there have been two extremes that have uh, been spawned um, and both of them have really taken a toll on a, on a proper understanding of what it means to live by grace. One of those extremes has to do with legalism. And we spent several weeks, I don't know, five weeks, trying to analyze the legalists. And uh, their approach to living out the Christian life is simply to develop a code, uh, know the code, and go live by the code. And the code is developed by the particular group of which I have to happen to be a part. If I happen to be a part of this group, it may be that the code is this. But if I'm a, a part of a different group, the code may be somewhat different. But ultimately, um, uh, my concern is for what everybody around me thinks about me, and therefore I'm, I'm going to live by the code they tell me to live by. Now, that's, that's uh, Pharisaism. It's highly judgmental, as we've talked about, um, and something, two things that we uh, abominate around here, and that judgmentalism, of course, being one of them. But then there's the other extreme. The, 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 uh, the Pharisee or the legalist is on one end of the spectrum. On the opposite end of the spectrum are those who are saying that um, I have been saved by grace. Jesus paid it all, and indeed he did. And because he's paid it all, I can go out and live any old way I please, all uh, under the umbrella of grace. I can live any way I like, <clears throat> and um, because I'm saved by grace. Well, that is a position that has uh, come to be known as antinomianism. Uh, it's a long churchy word, but it simply means, it, the, the, the word means against the law, but an antinomian is someone who says basically no law, no, no boundaries, no, uh, no legality of any sort because I live by, um, uh, by grace. And very honestly, uh, any... Any, uh, any effort at imposing any kind of boundary uh, is seen by them as an assault upon grace. So, we've spent the weeks on the Pharisee, we've spent one week on the antinomian, and uh, we're going to resume right there and hopefully finish up our analysis of antinomianism tonight. Um, I want to tell you just how um, dangerous antinomianism can be. Um, and you're going to get a lot of that tonight, of, of some of the consequences of antinomianism and, and what, it has, what it has done to us in terms of the Christian church. But let me, let me, um, let me show you one that I, that I guess is perhaps the most serious ramification, but it is serious. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, you might want to turn open them with me to Luke chapter 8. Everybody, oh, well, not everybody, but maybe most of you know the parable of the four soils. 
You know that parable? The sower goes out to sea, uh, to sow. Um, he goes out to sow and he scatters his seed uh, in four different soils. And uh, there's four different reactions to the soil. And uh, one of them is the birds come and pluck this one up. And the other one is the thorns choke this one out. And the other one is uh, there's no dirt in this one. And the other one brings forth fruit. Um, well, I preached that text as we were preaching through Mark because it's found in Mark 2, Mark also. But I, I want to deal with the Luke one. Um, but I preached that. And uh, having finished my series on the parable of the four soils, I got a phone call. And a couple wanted to come see me. And uh, this was a couple, three years ago when we were going through Mark. And you know how long ago that was. And um, so they came to see me and uh, sat in my office and told me that they disagreed entirely with my rendering and my presentation of the parable of the four soils. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, I, you know, John Calvin said no man was ever 70% right. I'm... I'm eager to be uh, corrected where I'm wrong, and so I wanted to listen. Um, and um, they went on to tell me that in the parable of the four soils, all four of those conditions were saved conditions. That is, all four of those men, uh, the, the, the men represented by those soils. Are you with me? I mean, uh, I haven't lost you. All those four men, uh, men uh, the man who had the seed sown on him and the birds came and plucked it away, he was a saved man. Now, um, I, I, I have to tell you, first of all, that this couple's uh, position was highly influenced, I think. This is, this is, this is a piece of guesswork on my part, but was highly influenced by a family member that they had who had made a profession of faith early in this life and had gone on to become a Wiccan. Do you know what a Wiccan is? We're not talking about witches. We're talking about major league witches. I mean, we're talking about the top dog witches. Well, this family member had made a profession of faith uh, early on and then had become a Wiccan and uh, denounced everything that was Christian and this couple sat in my office and said, that's a saved person. Now, see, that's what antinomianism will do to you. Because if, if there is absolutely no boundary whatsoever, no, um, no evidences of grace, then all I have to do is nod my head towards Jesus, get a ticket to heaven stuck in my pocket, get sprayed with a coat of asbestos, and then I can go live any old way I please. Now, gang, um, that's antinomianism at its worst. But let me just show you what Luke says. I just wanted you to see that that's got to be wrong. That is their rendering. Look at, uh, I'm in Luke chapter 8, and Jesus is explaining the parable to his disciples. Remember? Okay. They take him aside and say, Jesus, you know, <laughs> we're not sure we understand either. Could you, could you help us out with this? And so Jesus begins to, to explain. Verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. We know that. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be... What's the next word? <laughs> You see, guys, um, there's no way that all four of those conditions being described there could be considered safe people. 
Now, by the way, in the Mark edition or the Mark version of this parable, you don't find that, that statement. You don't find uh, Mark saying, putting, inserting that little clause there. That's why I came to the Luke version. But guys, uh, that's what antinomianism will do to you. It will say, grace, grace, grace. Oh, you're a Wiccan. That's okay. Because I know that uh, you saying Jesus loved me this, I know because the Bible told me so. That's all you need. That's fine. That is antinomianism at its worst. And um, it's alive and well today, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, there are books floating around out there, and I got one stuck in my hand one night, uh, which I, uh, perhaps you've heard of Zane Hodges. Zane Hodges is, is the uh, Bob theme. Bob theme's and also a, Anyway, that's, that's antinomianism at its worst. But there are other serious ramifications of antinomianism. I said last week that the fundamental flaw in antinomianism is that there is... You remember the text in, in Proverbs chapter 29 where there is no revelation, people go unrestrained. That is, where there is no sense of God speaking into a man's life, where there is no sense of God saying, Thus sat the Lord into a man's life, they go unrestrained. That is, if, there's, if God has not spoken, then how is it that I'm supposed to live? Well, you know, uh, I don't know. How about this? Any old way I think uh, legitimate. That's how I'm supposed to live. So, um, and I was saying to you that basically the, the number one flaw um, of an antinomian is mindlessness. He's not thinking. I'm not saying his brain's dead. I'm just saying... He's not going to the Word for his definitions. He's not going to the Word to find out um, uh, that God has spoken and God has placed some boundaries. You know, um, I, I don't think this, the man who said this to me, I don't think you'll mind, my, I'm not going to tell you who said it, but I, I don't think you'll mind me at least sh sharing this with you. Because he came up to me last week and he said, I owe you an apology. And I said, uh, okay. Usually, I'm the one having to do all that, but uh, he said, <clears throat> I want to apologize because I didn't give you long enough. Because he had heard me damn the legalist and say, you know, we're free in Christ, we're free in Christ, we're free in Christ. And he assumed, uh-oh, Jimmy is saying, there's no boundary. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is antinomianism. And I would never espouse such a thing. But then Kevin come back next week and said, now the antinomians down here saying that there's no boundary. Then he understood that, you know, I, I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do is give you, I'm trying to damn both ends of the spectrum and then we're going to come back and I'm going to try to give you what I do believe the Bible says uh, as to how we live out and flesh out grace. But because of the mindlessness, ladies and gentlemen, on the part of the antinomian, there is then a very slow but very definite drift towards no absolutes. Um, we become, or the antinomian becomes, a situation ethicist because, because he's, he's, he doesn't have any boundary. He has no place to go to get a boundary. Therefore, there is nothing that he can ever denounce as wrong. Uh, absolutes disappear. There are no restrictions. And um, uh, because truth is, or an absolute is something that divides and prohibits, I'll have none of that uh, because... We're free in Christ. 
So the, the, the subtle but inevitable drift of an antinomian is to eliminate absolutes. And so he gets real mushy morally. Well, is that wrong? Well, you know, I'm not real sure. You know, it depends on, you know, it depends on, you know, the situation. And that's situation ethics, as you know. But when there is no voice of God having been spoken into one's life, well, you know, there's, it's easy to kind of drift morally. Um, the antinomian is abhors denouncing anything because he's afraid to, and he has no standard by which he can denounce anything uh, because he doesn't want to violate grace. Now, guys, some of you are going to say, well, gosh, what about, I mean, we're going to get to that, but I'm saying that grace can be perverted, and it is perverted by the legalist, and it is perverted by the antinomian. It is perverted by the legalist in one way. It is perverted by the antinomian in another. I hope you see that. And so if all you hear is tonight, then you're going to say, well, gosh, that place doesn't promote grace. Oh, well, yes, we do. But uh, not like this. Because, um, because absolutes disappear, the lines of demarcation between the Christian and the non-Christian get very blurred. We are in no way, we become in no way different than the world around us. I have been uh, listening to a lot of stuff recently that has been given to me by uh, George Barna Research Institute. And on uh, uh, well, one of the tapes, he talks about the lifestyle of Christians or professing Christians. The lifestyle of professing Christians. And he took a, a survey of 65 non-religious behaviors and compared Christians with non-Christians in 65 non-religious behaviors. <coughs> Um, he said he was appalled that the differences between the Christian and the non-Christian was absolutely minimal. He said it was a couple of, a couple of percentage points, but uh, in terms of real, practical, tangible differences, there were very little difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, how, how, how we're fleshing out our lives. Guys, that's what happens when, uh, when, um, when absolutes are removed when boundaries are, are undermined. Um, he goes on to say, uh, at least I was told he went on to say, that the rate of divorce is now higher among the professing Christian world than the non-Christian world. Well, if you eliminate absolutes, everything gets blurred. We get mushy in terms of our living. And you know, how many times, and I, and I don't want to overstate it. I, I guess it hasn't been, I mean, I've been in the ministry a little over 25 years. Let's say six, that a Christian would look at me and say, or a professing Christian would look at me and say, God wants me to be happy. That is moral mushiness, ladies and gentlemen. And so when I step in and say, wait just a second, do you not know the boundary that has been set here? What? I live by grace, not by law, Dr. Young. That's an antinomian. 
That's antinomianism at work. Um, the antinomian makes nods his head toward Jesus some way and then adds church attendance and perhaps a Bible study to his schedule, but ultimately his life is no different than, um, than the non-Christian world. Uh, I can also say to you, ladies and gentlemen, it's a position that creates a great deal of easy believism and false assurance. You know what I mean by that? I mean, listen, all you must do is nod your head in Jesus' way, and then everything is just hunky-dory, and you can go live like you want to. And people are given assurance of their salvation because they nodded. I'm also listening to another uh, set of tapes that have been given to me by uh, Jim Newsom over here, and it's um, sermons by John Piper, and John Piper is saying um, that we in the evangelical world talk about we're saved by receiving the gift of eternal life, and that's true. It's a wonderful term. But he prefers another term. He said, Jesus must be our treasure. And, you know, there are some gifts that you can get that you don't even want. But when Jesus is a treasure to us, then we stand on solid ground. Um, the antinomian becomes insistent of his own rights. In the name of grace, I don't care who gets hurt, I am going to live out my life in grace. Um, I just want to read you one statement that Peter makes. In 1 Peter 2.16, you don't need to turn there, but uh, yeah. Um, I think, I, oh, wrong chapter. He says, um, as free... That is, as we are as free, not yet, not using liberty as a cloak for vice. <laughs> That's what the antinomian does. But because we're such grace lovers, and we are, we allow people to live in vice because you know they, they, they walked an aisle when they were nine. Now, they've been living like hellions ever since. But they walked that aisle at night. Now, folks, please don't misunderstand me. I'm never in the position to figure out who's in and who's not in the kingdom. I, that's, I, I, can never, I can never do that. But I'm saying it's antinomianism that creates a fertile ground for that kind of response to be made. Um... You know, I, I talked to you last week about the, uh, the weaker brother principle. Um, I, I can only tell you that the antinomian is not, uh, not concerned about the weaker brother. He's not concerned about anybody. He's concerned about having his rights, his liberty. And you know, you, you, um, you have to wonder about folks who don't care about the impact of their lives on other folks, don't you? Don't you think? Um, now, I do realize, and I said this last week, that the weaker brother principle can be downright tyrannical. And sometimes the weaker brother has to be told, well, I'm sorry, big boy. It's time that you grew up, Mr. Weaker Brother. But those who are not in, in any way concerned about their actions and the impacts that it has on uh, those around them, I, you have to wonder about them that their rights are so important to them that they wouldn't dream of wanting to give any, set any of them aside so that people wouldn't stumble. Um, here's what I want to say to the antinomian. You're not reading your Bible. 
Um, how could you be reading your Bible if you can so so little concern about righteous living? Now, I'm not saying I'm not saying you're having you're not having your quiet time. <laughs> I'm saying that the final arbiter of truth is not the Bible for you. That your views, you know, guys. My wife um, um, tells a story about some some older women that she knows who um, who have been in the church for just I mean they're they're all in their 80s and uh, um, and they they're hearing about the grandchildren and all the grandchildren are you know moving in with somebody else and and uh, one grandchild had an abortion and uh, you know um, um, this grandchild's doing that and they're just all a, a, a dither but the but the reigning opinion of these ladies is but you know it's just the 90s. Of course, it's not the 90s. It's just the new millennium. And I want to say to somebody who says such a foolish thing, are you reading your Bible? You couldn't possibly make such a statement if you go to God's Word and let it critique you. You couldn't possibly go and say something about abortion like that or somebody who is cohabitating. You couldn't possibly say that if you are concerned to understand the, the, the morality that is indeed promoted by this book. The thing, that, as you know, the thing that I, am, that I abhor is the morality that is, that is promoted by the legalist. I don't give a hoot about his morality. I could care less what you think I ought to be, the way I ought to be living. But I care very passionately about how this says I should be living. And you couldn't possibly have that kind of foolish position if you were reading your Bible. If you were not critiquing it, but allowing it to critique you. You know, I've said this from the pulpit a couple of times, but I just love this statement. You know, ladies and gentlemen, let's take the next six months off. Let's not go to the Bible for the next six months <coughs> with any effort to criticize it. Let's take the next six months and do nothing but allow it to critique us. How about that? Let's just sit beneath it and train and allow it to train its guns on us. And then let's figure out what what our morality is. Um, you, know, you know, those who are so interested in enjoying all of their liberties and maximizing their freedom in Christ, and uh, I want to look at them and say, are you thinking? Are, are, you, are you engaged? Are has the Word of God spoken to you at all? And here they are insisting on all of their freedoms in the name of grace. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that is to, that is to bring shame to grace. Two quick things and I'm finished. In terms of bringing shame to grace, listen to this text. This is in Titus chapter 1 where Titus says to his audience in verse, chapter 1, verse 16, they profess to know God, but in their works 
they deny him. You see, gang, um, it's the antinomian who's got some kind of... He's got the words down. The question now becomes, have you entered in, have you engaged with the Son of Man to figure out how it is that this new Savior of yours wants you to live? Because I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, he doesn't hesitate one second to say that's wrong and that's right. You know, I, I've often thought that if Jesus were to resurrect and appear among us and preach among us, I think there are people who would call him a legalist. I'm telling you, this Jesus does have standards. He does have boundaries. Now, the only ones I'm pleading for you to obey are his, not mine. But we've got to obey these. The legalist just wants to add to or replace the antinomian wants to eliminate all of them. One quick story and we'll quit. I want you to look at this one with me. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12. This is a, um, this is a familiar story. Um, uh, I, um, <laughs> I love to allude to it. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. But you know what happens. David is, uh, shouldn't be out with his armies fighting in the, in the battlefields of Israel. And instead he decides he's going to take this. He's going to sit this one out. And so one night he can't sleep. So he heads up to the rooftop and he spies a woman who has taken a bath. Now, that was pretty stupid on her part, it seems to me. But um, he uh, commits adultery with her, impregnates her, and, um, and then, of course, when he finds out that she is pregnant, he goes to all these extremes to try and cover his sin. You remember he calls her husband, Uriah the Hittite, calls him home uh, from the battlefield and says, you need to go on over and, you know, uh, sleep with your wife. He says, and uh, Uriah says, I couldn't dare do such a thing like that uh, while the armies of Israel are out uh, fighting their enemies. No way. So the next night he get, tries to get him drunk. And he finds out that uh, Uriah the Hittite has camped outside his wife's uh, bedroom door because he was not about to um, uh, turn his back on his responsibilities as a soldier. And so David finally decides, okay, well, this guy's not going to be tricked. I'm going to have to have him killed. And so what he does is he sends a note to his, the, the army, the general of his army, and he says, put, you know, uh, when the battle is hot, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put uh, Uriah out at the front of the battle, and uh, then when it's the hottest, turn your back and run. Leave him. Let him fight all of them. So that's what they do. And then Joab, the commander of the army, sends David a note and says, uh, the armies are really doing well, and by the way, Uriah's dead. And so David reads it and says, it worked. About that time, he gets a knock on the door. He's got a visitor whose name is Nathan. Nathan the seer, Nathan the prophet, has come to pay a small visit <coughs> on his king. And you remember what Nathan does? You remember the little story Nathan says, David, I got an old story I'd like to tell you. You know, it's a simple story. There was one this guy, and he had a whole lots of sheep. He had lots and lots and lots of sheep, but his other, his one guy did. And uh, this other guy, his, his neighbor, only had one sheep, deer sheep. He loved that sheep. He, you know, brought that sheep into his house and used to put that sheep in bed with him. The kids loved him. He's a household pet. Just, he only had one. His other guy had lots. But this other guy has a visitor from out of town. 
and uh, he's, uh, you know, a rich guy, and so instead of taking one of the sheep out of his flock, guess what he did, David? Well, I don't know, Nathan, what did he do? Well, he went down the street, and he got that, that guy's one poor family pet, slayed it, killed it, and fed it to his guest. What do you think about somebody who do something like that, David? And David said, that man should die. And about that time, Nathan takes his bony little finger and sticks it in the chest of David and says, Thou art the man. You're the man, David. Now, you know that story, but this is the part that absolutely makes my blood bubble. Verse 14. Um, well, let's read 13 and 14. 2 Samuel 12, 13 and 14. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Do you know what you did, David, by your actions? Oh, it's really bad that Uriah's dead. That's a tragedy, and I can't believe you killed one of your best friends. That's terrible. And as a result of your sin, your, your baby is going to die. That's terrible, too. But, David, do you see that because of what you did, you have given occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme you, David, you, by what you have done, <coughs> the pagans can sit out there and blaspheme because you decided that there were no laws, that you could live above the laws. And the whole non-Christian world snickers at us. And they hear that our divorce rates are higher than anybody else's. And they hear the way that we uh, handle our wives and our husbands and the kind of affairs that we have and the, and the way we go through this and that and da 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 And we wonder, why are they not responsive when we want to talk to them about Jesus? I'll tell you why, ladies and gentlemen because we lived outside the very clear boundaries that have been established, not by me, not by this church, not by the pastor, but by God himself. These are the ones that we've got to go figure out. Not the one the church has got, but these. It's about time for, if you've got a meeting or if you're in the choir practice, you need to be dismissed now, and then I'll pray and... Uh, Closes. <clears throat> there they go. Let me encourage you that Taras is going to give lessons and we're going to sing Easter music. Let's pray together. Our Father, um, I, I can... Um, 
I can hope at least that every person in this room sits here and and can almost weep in their souls hoping that we will never be the cause for the Gentiles to blaspheme because of our behavior. Our Father, um, there are something, there are some things more important than life. And um, I would rather die. I would rather die than bring shame to the gospel, bring shame to my family, and to bruise the body of Christ. Take me now, O God. Life is not so sweet that it is worth bringing shame to the gospel and disappointing my family and bruising these precious people in this room. Father, um, help us sort this all out. We know we don't want to be judgmental. We know that we don't want to uh, be a Pharisee and substitute the wrong laws for the right ones and live by the traditions. I mean, we know we don't want to do that. That is so ugly and so tyrannical and so uh, freedom-squashing. We hate it. But we also hate this business that says because we're saved by grace, we can live any way we want to. We don't want that either. Because that's the kind of living that brings mockery out of the mouth of the Gentiles. And I pray, Father, that we might live honorably, consistently, and that the people who live around us and work with us and watch us from afar will find something so intriguing, so different, so qualitatively different that the doors will be wide open for us as we seek to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel that simply states, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. We commit ourselves to that, Father, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Good night. Hope to see you next week.